So we're in this series on the healings of Jesus. Uh, in the summer, we know that people travel, they, they come and go, so we don't tend to preach on, on long books like Daniel or uh, complicated discourses like Romans or something like that in the summer, because if you miss one week in a series like that, then the whole thing makes no sense. It is like watching a movie, and one of your children comes in with, say, a bleeding foot, because they've fallen off a skateboard, and they weren't wearing any shoes. And then instead of bleeding onto the easily wipeable kitchen tiles, they bleed instead onto a beige carpet. And as you bandage the wound, a relative, let's make up a name and call him, for example, Bowlby, decides to help and remove the stain from the carpet using bleach. And then you come back to find that no one paused the movie. That can be a terribly frustrating experience. <laughs> we don't want that for you in church. That'd be awful. So the beauty of a series like this is that you can come and go, you can dip into it, you can listen to it in the room and online, you can catch up later in any order that you like. But don't make the mistake of thinking, therefore, that it's not about anything. There is a central theme to every single healing in the New Testament. Today, we have both a healing, not dissimilar to any other healing, but we also have Jesus' explanation of that central theme, his commentary. Why does Jesus heal? Well, to answer that, let's uh, turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Why does Jesus heal? Verse 5. A centurion came forward to him. So here's the setup. You have a centurion. This is a Roman officer in charge of 100 men. And he comes up to Jesus, and properly speaking, he should not. It fits the pattern of a, an inappropriate sort of a person coming up to, to Jesus. The wrong sort gets to meet with him. Uh, the leper, for example, last week, he was the wrong sort. He was a Jew, so ordinarily the right sort of person to approach a rabbi, but the condition on his skin had rendered him temporarily at least the wrong sort, an outsider, someone who was required to keep away. But he, ritually unclean and the wrong sort, nonetheless gets close to Jesus and nonetheless experiences healing from him. Here, we find someone who is in good health himself, but in a sense, he's worse than the leper. He is permanently unclean, permanently the wrong sort. He's a Gentile. Gentiles and Jews would, would keep their distance to some extent. Worse than any old Gentile, what we discover is, with this single word centurion, he is on the payroll of the enemy-occupying force. So there is an edge to this scene, as there is to many of these healings, a sense that something inappropriate is happening on the pages of Scripture. The wrong sort of person is drawing near to God, and that can't be a good thing. Now, there is some nuance. There's always nuance. We discover in another book of the Bible, I think it's Luke, that uh, this centurion is at least friendly with the Jews, maybe even has paid to build them a synagogue. So uh, he's a good guy, but fundamentally not one of them. An outsider, unclean, for ritual reasons, they would keep somewhat apart. The centurion himself even seems to recognize this if you look at verse 8. He says to Jesus, 
I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, scholars debate why exactly it is that he says this. It could just be his understanding of Jewish sensibilities about inviting a rabbi to come into an unclean home and therefore defile himself by his presence there. Uh, But uh, it could be more than just his understanding of, of the culture. It could be, to some extent, more personal than that. It could be a confession of sin, even. The word unworthy means incompetent. So what it feels like to me is a a sort of admission that he says to Jesus, I don't qualify for a visit from you. I I, I don't deserve it. It's wrong for you to come uh, and give me this sort of level of care. Other people, good people, they deserve a visit from you. They deserve healings because they're the right sort, but not me, Lord. You can't come to me. If that's correct, and we're speculating to some extent, it's rather impressive. Because when we get sick, that isn't always how we think, is it? When we get sick, we tend to complain a little bit. Some of us, if we've been sick a long time, we even tend to blame God. Why hasn't God fixed this? Why won't God come and heal me? Why has God not shown up for me after all I've done? I'm a tither. Why did I get sick? But he says, it doesn't matter. Who cares if I built a synagogue? I deserve nothing. I'm entitled to nothing. And I guess uh, as he says this, we find another slightly awkward aspect of this encounter, don't we? as he admits this unworthiness. I'm sure it was not easy for a centurion to admit to his inadequacies. I think it would be very humiliating for him in front of the people that he ruled, in front of all of the men, to uh, ask for help from a Jew of all people, some weird Jew. I'm going to go and ask for help. I think it would be humiliating for him in front of the Jews as well, you know, in front of uh, all the people that he ruled and he was supposed to boss around just to submit to one of them. This is an occupying soldier whose job it was to, to kind of quell dissent and rule over a town like this. And he submits to one of them. Not an easy thing to do. Not if you're used to being in control. If you're used to having authority, it's very difficult for you to say that you need help. He even says he's used to authority in verse 9, but here's the issue. He's just found a problem that he's powerless to fix. Maybe it's the first one ever. And desperation drives him to the Lord. Desperation drives this centurion to do something very strange indeed, maybe even for the first time in his life, and that is admit that he needs help. He says in verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Brackets, and I cannot fix it. Now, an awful lot of scholarly ink has been spilled on this relationship between the centurion and his servant. And, you know, quite why is it that a pagan warlord formed in the crucible of battle would care so much for a mere possession like this servant? Uh, Him saying, to Jesus in front of the crowd that his servant was sick 
would be like you admitting that your dishwasher was broken. It's a very strange thing. I'm, I'm sure that if your dishwasher was broken, that would not cause you to violate all the cultural mores of the day, risk a riot in your own city, and then grovel to the locals in front of your men when you could just buy a new one. Uh, some speculate, therefore, that uh, he's adopted this servant as a son. Matthew uses a slightly rarer word for servant here than the usual one, a word that can mean child or son. Maybe they're, they're closer than, than just master and slave. Uh, others, they say, well, we don't need to go that far. They point to examples in, in the ancient Near East of, of very dear and tender relationships between uh, people that worked for one another. I say it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter why he cared. The Bible tells us the truth. The Bible tells us all that we need to know. And all that we need to know is that the truth is that he did care and not why. He cared. And what we know is this. From our own experience, we can form all sorts of bonds of affection with all sorts of people that are completely different to us. The closest person to you in this church might be entirely different from you in some way. Uh, many of you have become bizarrely close friends with my children, and I don't know why you've done that, because they bleed on carpets. But uh, I, I love that. I love, I love being in a church that has, has people who are a generation or two apart from my kids, almost adopt them as, as grandchildren of their own. Isn't that great? Uh, we, we form relationships with people that are not like us. The, there was a policeman who worked for the school next door, and uh, he was very sick, and I, and, and I came home to discover that Cat had offered him a kidney. Which, you know, I had no idea they'd become so close. <laughs> I, what a thing. I even tried to put him off, and uh, she reminded me this week uh, that uh, I even told him she'd taken too many drugs and it was probably pickled, and she wouldn't want, he wouldn't want it. Uh, but th they'd become close, just chatting in a parking lot. That's how people work. Lots of scholarship about why it is that a Roman centurion would care about a mere servant, and, and to be honest, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that this is someone who did care. Soldiers often are protectors. They care. All of the soldiers I've met have been like that. Many of the soldiers that I know who no longer serve, uh, they, they carry medical kits with them in case a problem arises. Soldiers are heroes. And here's a hero. And he's powerless to help someone under his care. We know what it feels like all of us, to love someone and to be powerless to help. So what do we do when someone in our family is sick and we can't fix them? What do we do? We do gestures, don't we? I'm going to hold the door for you in the rain. I'm going to bring you a cup of coffee. We, uh, we try to help out, you know, drive you to the doctor. We, we try to distract. I'm going to get you a treat uh, so that you forget the pain for a moment. We compensate, we alleviate, uh, we, we, we do something caring. But in terms of our ability to heal, these gestures are useless because we are. 
It hurts to see someone you love unhealed. So imagine with me now the hope that would well up inside of the heart of this centurion man when Jesus says to him in verse 7, I will come and heal him. It's a done deal. The minute Jesus says this, I will, the promises of God, it is a covenant promise. It is going to happen, but there's still a hitch. Verse 8, the centurion says, you can't do that because I'm dodgy. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too, verse 9, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Maybe that's why he likes his servant. He found that rarest of things, an employee who actually does his job. It's a joke. I too am a man under authority and I get my job wrong all the time. He says, look, I'm, he says, I'm a man under authority. I say, go, they go. I say, come, they come. I'm a boss and they do what uh, they, you know, they're told. I direct people, he says. And he says, you are the Lord and you direct everything. And just as I don't need to be on every battlefield or in every trench to win the battle, you don't need to be in my house to do the healings. Just say the word, because your word is law. And it's true. With a word. He spoke the earth into motion. With a word, a hundred billion galaxies were formed. With a word, he promised to heal the sick. With a word, God promised to return. With the word, God promised to bring all things to their completion, to make all things new, to draw in all the nations. So speak, O Lord, says this centurion man. Just speak. Do not let shame, if you've come into church with shame today, do not let shame at being the wrong sort Prevent the healing word of God from entering into your home. And if you've come into church with pride, that, that you're the kind of person who always gets what they want, do not let pride prevent the healing word of God from coming into your home. I want us to be a church that is increasingly both expectant about God's grace and vulnerable about our needs, like the centurion. That's the vision for our church. Now, ordinarily, I absolutely detest sermons where the preacher gets up and says, look, here's this great dude from the Bible, or this amazing saint from history, and, you know, Saint blah, blah, the obscure. Not heard of them? Well, guess what? I'm smarter than you. And by the way, they're way holier than you, so go and be like them, and ah, ha, ha, you can't. Bad luck. That is not my ideal sermon. I hate that sort of thing. So I I don't intend to, to pick someone awesome from Scripture and say, go be like them. Because it is at once both a horrible burden, <laughs> if you've not had the same calling as that person, and been equipped by the Holy Spirit to do it, and also it's selling you short, because you shouldn't go and be like them, you should go and be like Jesus. So I don't do, here's a great guy, go and be like great guy sermons. This is different, though. I'm doing it today because the centurion is not a great guy. He admits it. 
He's unworthy. And he needs help. And he expects it. So be like him. And we call this thing, by the way, Christianity. Go and be like the centurion. Admit you need help. Be humble. Expect the help. And in verse 10, Jesus agrees that this is indeed Christian. He says in verse 10, well, it says in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Note the he. Ordinarily, what happens when a healing occurs is that the crowds marvel. But here, almost unique, we find Jesus marveling at this guy. Christ is blown away by the faith of an outside man. And this comes, it has to be said, in stark contrast to the faith of his own people. He said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So that's the healing itself. Now for the explanation from Christ about the theme. What are healings all about? Well, with every new series, we always choose a new graphic. We, we put them on, on the front cover of the bulletin. The, the aim is quite simple to, to illustrate in one picture the essence of what the series is, is all about. And uh, with a word like healing, there were so many directions we could have gone with something like healing. There were many, many library photographs of, of sunsets and, and hippies and dandelions and uh, women smiling in big hats, usually standing on a cliff for some reason, overlooking the sea. Uh, that is apparently uh, de rigueur with any good healing. These are the essential components of anything uh, to do with healing. Occasionally, you get a picture of a first aid kit or something like that. But we, we chose this, this extraordinarily industrial-looking bulletin, um, ugly bulletin, on, on, on purpose, because I think it captures more starkly the idea of what the theme of the series is all about. What you've got here on the, on the bulletin cover is something forgotten, something neglected, some scrap. It's gone to rust. It was nice, and no one wants it anymore. It's gone off. And I want you to know that if that's you, nothing is too far gone for Jesus to heal. Nothing is beyond his ability to restore. You might have been in the very depths of decay, but the master can restore you with just a word. And another reason for this image is that the same time as Jesus restores that which has been neglected and has gone to rust, there's also a risk. There's a risk for anyone here that's in good shape, that without continued care, you will fall into decay. There's a sense of flow here that the rusty can be restored and the restored can easily go off without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is where Jesus sort of goes with his little explanation of what these healings are all about now. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So it's a reminder of this great messianic promise to Father Abraham that one day, 
Uh, God would bless all of the nations through him. The culmination of God's salvation plan is to draw in the wrong sort from east and west, to bring in people from all over the place, not just one ethnic tribe, but the whole of God's creation one day would be restored. And not just people, but things as well. And healings like the one we've just seen of an outsider, the wrong sort, are like the first snapshot of the kingdom yet to come. The first signs that the culmination of the kingdom is nigh and that anyone can be healed. Every healing is just a testimony to God's plan to heal all things, a universal hope, even for the wrong sort. And then Jesus warns in verse 12, warns those of us who are doing well. He says in verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who reject him will be ruined, even if they have the right sort of background. Even if they're good. If they reject Jesus, they will go to rust. The Messiah is a healer and a judge. He heals the humble. He judges the proud. So there's a lot of movement in this series. The wrong sort coming in and the proud going out and everyone having this opportunity. And there's a couple of very, very simple lessons that I just want to conclude with for us today. And the first is this. In all of the excitement about healings, be warned. Be warned. If you're the right sort, if things are going very well for you, if you're in good spiritual shape and you even shine, and your uh, leading member of the congregation, the most mature that we have, you still need Jesus. There are still parts of your life, little tiny bits that need to be restored. You're not perfect. And if you neglect Jesus, you will still decay. So do not coast. Keep coming back. Be vulnerable. Be vulnerable with Jesus. Second is this. I want you to see that these healings are just a preview of something greater to come. Something that uh, all of us can have. So if you're not healed right away, if you are suffering today, and if not you, someone uh, that you care for is suffering, and they're not healed, and you fear that maybe even life itself is slipping away from them, do not give up. I want us to be a, a church community that never gives up. And if you are suffering, our church community might benefit the most from you. If you're suffering, you might have the most to give here. My friend John, and I've mentioned him before, so I'll speak briefly about him was the office manager in my previous church, and he was diagnosed with ALS. And over two years, we watched him slowly slip away and, and lose abilities to move. We, we fed him, and uh, the church clothed him and bathed him and sat with him at night and turned him in the night so that he could get some rest. And uh, as John was, was wheeled out of the church in a chair uh, on, on the last day, uh, that he could speak before losing his voice entirely. 
the very last word he said as he was pushed out of the building was the word hope in the midst of suffering. If you're the most unfortunate of souls in this room today, you have the most power to help me create a church that's vulnerable and a church that hopes for something even bigger than just a healing, but the restoration of all things. So let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for the faith of the centurion, the humility to, to say in front of everyone he knew that he needed help. And so I just pray the same thing for us, Lord Jesus, for anyone who's doing well, that we would stay with you. And for anyone who feels abandoned, that you would come to us. Thank you that you approach the unworthy and that with a word, we can be healed. In the name of Jesus, amen.